I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe with the I Want to Be a Clone edition of New Books in Science Fiction. And I'll admit I'm a little bit intimidated by my guest today because not only has her book, Six Wakes, been nominated for two major science fiction awards, the Philip K. Dick and Nebula, but she is a podcaster extraordinaire. In fact, Mer Lafferty has been podcasting since 2004, serializing her fiction through podcasts and also producing the I Should Be Writing and the Ditch Diggers podcasts, in which she provides unvarnished advice about writing. She also won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 2013, and she's with me right now via Skype. Hey, Murr, thanks for taking the time to talk. Thanks for having me. You make me sound very impressive. That doesn't doesn't feel like me, but thank you. I'm impressed. What can I say? So my first question is kind of personal, but are you a clone? Because how else can you produce so much good stuff? Well, see, a lot of a lot of people ask that, but they it sort of implies that I do all of this stuff every day. And that's not the case. I usually focus on one project at a time, and then I'll realize I'll get, I'm getting behind in another one of my projects, so I'll run to catch up on that project. And, and um, I actually feel like I waste a lot of time. Okay, so I guess you're not a clone. All right, you're just like No, a, no, I'm not. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're a regular person like, like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm actually kind of relieved because the clones in Six Wakes there's something kind of scary about them. Yeah. So maybe, do you want to set up the story? Uh, sure. In the far future, cloning has been developed to extend life instead of multiply people. And after cloning was, after a lot of bad things happened, of course, someone's going to exploit that as far as they possibly can. Regulations were passed. Um, things like once you... Once you clone yourself, you must be sterilized because you you have to be your own heir for the rest of your existence. And um, even though the technology exists to change your uh, mental or physical DNA makeup, that becomes illegal too. And um, a variety of other rules are passed. And then a bunch of people decide that they're going to colonize a new planet with a Generation Starship, and they realize that the best people to pilot it would be clones, because they could have the same crew the whole way there. And they wouldn't have the weird thing with the Generation Starships that happen in fiction, which is, um, you know, generations pass, someone forgets something, and then suddenly you've got this society living on a ship, and they don't even know that they're living on a ship, and they don't know where they're going, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so our our crew is six people and they're going to be living their lives on the ship and if one of them happens to die from either old age or an accident um, or illness they will have a new clone woken up and they'll just keep going and the unlikely thing happens where all six of them wake up at the same time with a whole bunch of dead bodies around them and they're the only people on the ship so they they realize that one of them has killed them. At least one of them has killed them. And they have no idea why, because their memories aren't there. So that starts this kind of weird locked room mystery where these people have to solve their own deaths, solve their own murders, and 
the weirdest thing is some of them don't know. I mean, as we unlock their past, you realize that a lot of them could be the murderers and a lot of them think that they may have been the murderer, but uh, even they don't know. So they have to all figure that out. Well, yeah, it's a murder mystery. And it's it's so unusual because the investigators of the crime are also the victims. So in essence, as you just said, all all six of them were murdered and then all six of them are you know, reborn or in the ter- terminology of the book, they're, wo- I guess, woken. I mean, awake refers to, you know, revivifying uh, one of their mm-hmm. cl- their clones. So so then they have to investigate their own murders. And on top of that, they're all criminals who've been given a chance to start a new life by joining this ship and, and serving as its crew. Yes. And on top of that, the cloning in the book isn't the way listeners might casually think of what cloning is. They're not reborn as babies from DNA and sort of blank slates. They're born into adult bodies. And usually they, they have the memories that were their most recently preserved memories. But in the case of these crew members, they don't have any recent backup. So they basically don't remember the last 20 some odd years of their, their lives. So it's really... I'd say a brilliant hook for a story. It's really, it's quite an unusual setup. Thank you. I, I just heard, uh, one of my inspirations actually is a video game called FTL, where um, you, it's just a starship simulator where you drive your starship and you are fighting other starships. But one of the things you can upgrade your ship to have is a cloning bay. Only the cloning bay is only there if you have you lose a crew member it's not there to populate your ship with the same person and i thought about only using cloning to extend life and not to make multiples of a person and that was one of the the little story seeds that lodged itself in my head about how that would be and how they would criminalize making more than one of yourself yeah, well, that that idea and the the codicils that you outline that have evolved in this future world to govern cloning are all fascinating in and of themselves. But one of them that's very interesting is your clone is only supposed to be woken after your last body has expired. But if by accident or, or happenstance, as happens on the ship, uh, at least to one crew member, your clone is woken while your last version is still alive, then there are rules governing that too, where the if I understood correctly, the previous, the older body has to be destroyed, which mm-hmm. sounds a lot like murder to my modern current, you know, 2018 years, but in this future world is is not the case at all. But I thought that was kind of an interesting implication. Yeah, the newest clone takes precedent over the older clone. That's the that's the way the, the, the rules got written. And occasionally, as we see in a couple of flashbacks, that may end up being an unfortunate legal situation but um you know the law is not usually malleable so it, it, it was just fun thinking of all the ways people would first i thought of the ways people would um exploit cloning as far as they possibly could and then thought of what kind of rules laws would they pass to try to hold that back and so you know if you have two of your own clone i mean people have written stories about this who who inherits, who gets the stuff, who gets the life, you know? And so they had to make a decision. Did the older clone get it or did the younger clone get it? So they figured, you know, the new body has precedence. 
Do you want to explain what bathtub babies are? It, it was a term that you know comes up in the book in the history of cloning, and it made me think of. It sounded like back alley abortions, even though it's completely different. I mean, bathtub babies are very different. It's pretty similar, actually. Well, no, I mean, it's it's dangerous and dreadful the same way, I suppose. Um, when uh, let's see, bathtub babies are what caused one of the laws to be passed, which is you can't hack. Uh, your DNA, which is parents, babies would be born with either genetic problems or a disability, or even in the case of more wretched stories, maybe it just didn't look like what the parents wanted it to. And so they realized they could just uh, upload the baby's DNA, have a hacker fix it to way, where they wanted it, drown the baby, and then bring back its clone, and then they would have the perfect baby. So while things like, you know, real genetic problems, um, like diseases, could be fixed, people exploiting it in that way made it more difficult to use, like, the DNA hacks for, for good instead of for evil. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I was thinking the difference between a bathtub baby and abortion. I mean, the, the parents, they want the child, they just want the child to be different as opposed to, mm-hmm. and they have access to the best kind of medicine or the most sophisticated as opposed to a back alley abortion where you don't. So they're sort of almost like at other opposite ends of the spectrum, but definitely mm-hmm. there's a definitely something related going on there. Also, there's something really, really dark inside you if you're able to kill your own child in order to improve it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of dark things in the book. I mean, another thing is the notion that people could be murdered and then brought back and not remember that the way they were tortured or some horrible thing. And one of your characters, it turns out, has to find a, a way to, to, to communicate with her future selves about things that happened to her that would not that were not recorded on her mind map. Yeah, that was... Uh... That one was a puzzle to figure out. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the mind mapping, programming, I well, okay, all of the mind mapping and programming stuff I did was total hand wavy. It's really funny that um, I expected to be criticized for the cloning and mind mapping technology hand wavy stuff, but instead a reviewer decided to criticize me for my very legitimate astronomy research that I did so the 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 reviewer did not like how I built the ship and actually worked hard to make the space travel plausible while the clone cloning was all hand wavy but somebody didn't like the space travel so that was fun I just took for granted that the ship was well constructed and and made sense well I tried I I had a astrophysicist friend uh read it over for me and she she liked it so I had an expert opinion she also is the one who told me what happens to blood in zero g which is why there's so much description in the first chapter because i was so happy to put every little bit of detail in there that she told me oh my god that's right oh these like globules yeah. of blood <laughs> floating around in in zero gravity oh yeah that was very intense yeah mm-hmm. there was a lot of gore and it's a unique kind of gore when it's your own gore i mean you're you're watching your own dead body floating around in zero gravity and your own blood floating past but in front of your eyes yeah it 
seems particularly horrific. But, but I think one of the consequences, and you point this out, of this kind of habitual cloning is that their body becomes little more than basically a shell. In fact, that's what they call it. They call it a, a shell. So that leaves them to sometimes grapple with, you know, has life lost its meaning? And one of your characters, before he became a clone, was someone who was opposed to cloning and, and said clones don't have souls. And so there's that subcurrent debate going on. I wonder what your feelings were about that as you were exploring this issue. I I have no idea. It was really one of those things where I'm like, wow, that's an interesting question. I'm going to... I'm going to try to explore that along all the lines I can. And I didn't come up with an answer. I mean, clones are not allowed to really practice a lot of religion because so many religions object to cloning because of the, the question of what happens to your soul. So that's the person who was against cloning was also very religious. So that was an extra hit for that person, you know, once they became cloned. It's like, wh- who am I? What am I? And yeah, I don't know. I don't have a stance. I just tried to explore it from both points of view. So at its core, the story is a mystery focusing on who among them is a killer. And the six crew members are trying to figure out who killed their previous incarnations. Was that a challenge to plot out Six murders, six suspects. How did you go about doing that? Once I realized I was writing a mystery, I realized I hadn't read a lot of mysteries. So I kind of stumbled into this mystery idea. So I started mainlining Agatha Christie. And I just read book after book after book and read about how she approached her writing and how she approached her mystery. And... Um, that helped me out a lot because her, you know, her approach to mysteries was pretty simple. It was, you know, you throw in a dead body and you give everybody a motive and then you see what happens. So I think it was like a, I'd done a draft, but I wasn't happy with it. And then I read that and I realized I had given everybody a really good motive. And so I had to go back and, and tweak all that. And after that, it was a lot stronger. You, you you read her books or you read her writing on writing? Both. I mean, not like I not, I didn't read a memoir or anything. It was more like just I, I read how she approached her, you know, just a description of how she approached her writing. And I read a lot of her books, too. Do you think science fiction offers another evolution in the step of, of mysteries? I mean, you can bring in imagine science, fabricated science. It's not like you're bound by the rules of forensics anymore. You you can go in all different directions. I'm not sure. It's it's a lot of people like to do cross genre, especially with science fiction. You know, like you've got a lot of urban fantasies mix horror and fantasy and romance all together. Um, mystery is not as much as other I mean, like hardcore mystery, I don't believe is is mixed as often as, say, romance is. But um, I mean, it's done. So it's always fun to to mix genres because sometimes you'll get people who are just like, I love mystery, not too into science fiction, but I'll read it because of the mystery. But then you'll get people who are just like, I don't really like mystery, but am I saying the same thing twice? I think I am. 
anyway, sometimes you have people who are one a fan of one genre and not the other, but they'll get pulled in because if you wrote their favorite part strong enough, they're willing to keep reading kind of thing. And you've been working for a long time, both creating stories, but also thinking about writing as well in your podcasting and been giving people advice and you draw on your own experience. So I wonder if you have any observations about how your writing has evolved over the years. And also, have you picked up any lessons in particular from writing Six Wakes? Mm. I'm not sure, specifically regarding Six Wakes. Well, it sounds like you did pick up some technical understanding about writing mysteries. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel I feel more confident writing mysteries. I, I've got that. I, I really like the Agatha Christie formula. And I've had a lot of Christie fans say that they really like the book. So I'm pretty proud of how I, I managed that. I think I'd like to do another mystery. It, it was it was interesting. And science fiction does give you, you know, avenues where normal mysteries can't go, obviously, such as cloning. But I think the lessons I learned basically have to do with trusting yourself and trusting the story and not trusting there are times in the process of writing a book where it's useful to have people give you criticism. And there are times when it is not useful at all. And if you happen to get some criticism during that time, it's best to just ignore it because it could really stop you in your tracks if you worry too much about it. So I guess I learned that sort of emotional lesson. Is that something personal to each person like you know certain people might be more sensitive at the beginning of a work when things are just falling into place or share early so you get a good idea that that you've ironed out with people whose opinions you respect but then keep it to yourself when you're working out the details because you know everyone has a bad day writing you might write a bad scene one day you show that bad scene to someone they don't like it and you feel discouraged i think everyone's pretty insecure at the very beginning because Stories change so much as you write them that you, whatever was the seed of your idea may not even be present anywhere in your final book, but it was important. It was an important step toward the final book. So if somebody steps on that to go on with the seed metaphor, then it, you could have problems actually continuing and finishing the book. But I mean, if you have an agent and you need to show them something early in the process, that is an opinion that you need to listen to. Or if you have an editor who wants to see how things are going, then that's an opinion you need to listen to. But there are other people who maybe you shouldn't listen to. I made the mistake of reading uh, the book had been sold and I was pretty set on the first chapter. And I read it at a convention once and got some pretty negative comments from the audience, which in which was rude to begin with, because you don't do that during an author's reading. But it really discouraged me a lot. And I probably shouldn't have done that. I did it again at a more recent con, but I did not get bad re re response. So that was good, at least. So people in the audience actually in their Q&A were commenting or they came up to you afterwards and said, oh, by the way, I thought I didn't like this or that. No, somebody brought it up during the Q&A asking if I was open to comments. And I said, uh, sure. And that opened the floodgates and everybody had something to say. It was a small group, but still it was it, it, it did feel like being um, dogpiled. Did it affect the way you wrote the scene? Did you end up changing it or did you? No, no. No, I had confidence in the scene. I was very 
discouraged just because they didn't trust that I knew what I was doing. That's really what they were saying is that the, the, the things I was bringing up, they did not believe I could pull it off. And, you know, they didn't say specifically that, but the questions they were asking were all implying that, say, for example, one of the six people is very shy that he's naked in a cloning vat. Everybody else has been reborn a lot, and they are completely comfortable with nudity, but one person is not. And one of the criticisms was, why is this person not comfortable with nudity? That doesn't make sense. This is inconsistent. And I'm like, really? You think so? Do you think I'm being sloppy or do you think that might come up later? <laughs> right. Things like that. Right. So it was, you know. Or, or maybe the poor guy, every freaking time he's reborn, he's shy about, you know, it's just the way he is. Everyone's a little different. Yeah. Yes. How about these nominations that you've gotten? That's fantastic. You must feel amazing to be up for these two awards. It's it's staggering. I, I still can't believe it. I'm baffled. I think because of that bad situation, I, I had confidence that I liked the book, but I didn't think anybody else would. And then, you know, I got a good review and another good review and people said they liked it. And it was it was just weird. I just didn't expect the... The response, and so now that it's gotten two award nominations, I'm just, I'm baffled. It's, it's, I still can't believe it. Like when you said the the book's been nominated for two awards, I'm like, has it really? Is is that is that a thing that is real? I didn't just dream that. It's, it's. I I hope that I come to accept it, but um, I am going to Norwestcon in a couple of weeks for the Philip K. Dick ceremony, and I'm going to the Nebula weekend for the Nebula ceremony. So. I suppose by then it'll be real enough for me to, you know, show up. Probably need to write a speech. Yeah, for sure. You got to write two for the nebulas. How come? Because when you lose, they have a little thing afterwards called the alternate universe speech, where somewhere in a parallel universe, your book did win. And so you have to deliver that speech. You don't have to, but it's a fun thing, apparently, that a lot of people do. That's great. Well, it sounds like one speech. You either read it in the main thing or you read the same one at a later time, right? Well, sure. But the loser speech, people apparently get really creative and fun with it. Oh, I see. They don't actually give their... I mean, some do. Some may, may, may Maybe they want to make sure that they have thanked everybody who was really, really important to them. But they might be a little sillier or stranger than they would be had they gotten on stage to actually pick up the trophy. Actually, that sounds very therapeutic. I mean, everyone should be able to do that if they don't win an award. It sounds like it could be kind of cathartic to just kind of like loosen up and say whatever the hell you feel like. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Of course, my friend Ursula Vernon, who's actually getting a reputation for really strange, fascinating award speeches, was so expecting to lose the nebula, she only wrote her alternate universe speech. So she had to give that when she got up to when she won. And you only need to write one because you're going to win. So don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't really think so. But I'm, 
you know, every the whole cliche, like all the cliches that happen with the whole award nomination, they're all true. I mean, just hearing that my book was considered, you know, one of the seven best of the year by my peers, and I'm up there with so many amazing authors is just mind-blowing. And it's it's very special to me because I was friends with Annalee Newitz. Like, we're not best buds, but I met her many years ago, and all, we always enjoy hanging out together, but I just... You know, I messaged her when the nominations came out and I said, I really wish I could just get in a time machine and go back to like 2006 or whenever we met and just go, hey, you guys, in 12 years, something awesome is going to happen you two at the same time. So I'm um, I'm just I'm really happy for her and how well her book is doing. So it's baffling. It's wonderful. I'm interviewing her in a couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, great. She's so wonderful. I love Annalie. Tell her I said hi. <gasps> Okay, well, she hopefully she'll listen and she'll hear you say it yourself. Okay. NorwestCon will be around the time that this airs. So who knows? Maybe this will be old news when I say you were nominated. Maybe you will have won by then. It's all very weird to to record before an award thing and have it air afterwards. It's it's a it's a weird feeling. Yeah, the, the Philip K. Dick nominees are also really impressive. Just my first thought was, oh, no, I'm up against the murder bot. Uh, Martha Wells' All Systems Red is nominated, and that was one of my favorite books from last year. It's just her Murderbot is one of my favorite characters. Murderbot is awesome. What are you working on now? I'm working on a secret project I can't talk about yet, and I'm working on a new um, science fiction book for my agent to sell. I'm out of contract with my publisher, so kind of starting at square one again. So I have a book that's, I like to call it 1984 Meets Blue's Clues. It's a story about a totalitarian future and a children's television show host. Sounds great. You've got good high concepts, like six weeks. Thank you. Yeah, and I want I want to put codes into it because I was very heavily influenced by the uh, album Splendor and Misery that came out last year from Clipping. That was nominated for the Hugo as well. Um, but it's a... Uh, you know, a rap, a hip hop concept album with science, a science fiction story, and it's got codes hidden in the album. And that just blew my mind. So I was trying to figure out how I could put that into a book. So I'm going to be trying to figure that out too. Well, and I'm very intrigued by your secret project, but it's a secret. So I guess you're not going to give any clues. I have no idea when I can tell people. I wish I could. Really? Is it a non-disclosure agreement you signed? Yes. My agent keeps warning me about snipers that are watching me in case I say something wrong. So she's she's really scared me. Is it like in Breaking Bad at the very end where there's a little late? It looks like someone's pointed a gun at you know with a little laser light, but it's just one of those laser pointers. But you know they think <laughs> they think that's it. Did your agent yeah. set that up so it looks like someone's? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, somebody's just just in the woods behind my house. If they see me on the phone or see me talking to the mic, they just shine the light in, and I'm like, oh God, there they are. It's her intern. She has posted out in the woods. Yeah, I love this idea. Well, thank you so much. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. It's really been a pleasure and, and fun. Of course. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I've been speaking with Murrah Lafferty, the author of Six Wakes, which is a finalist for both the Philip K. Dick Award and the Nebula Award. And it's very possible that 
one of those. The Philip K. Dick Award will have been decided by the time this comes out. So uh, check check right now, Google, and see see if Mer won. And um, I think maybe she already did. <laughs> For more author interviews, check out newbooksnetwork.com and click on the science fiction show link. Or please subscribe to the New Books and Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And please, please consider leaving a review if you've liked today's show. I'm Rob Wolf. You can find me at robwolf.net. And thanks for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it.